0: and get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MeatEater for 10% off your purchase. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. Your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon.
1: Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 396. And today in the show, I'm joined by meat eaters Yanis to analyze his 2020 Wisconsin whitetail bow hunt and to explore ways that all of us can better learn from our hunts and unfilled tags. Alright, welcome to the wired to hunt podcast brought to you by Onyx. And today on the show, we've got Giannis Patelis with me. And most of you probably know Giannis. He's a producer and host and do-it-all extraordinaire over at Mediator and a damn good hunter. But most of that hunting over the last two decades has happened out west for big game animals other than whitetails. But this year, his whitetail interest was rekindled as he planned a return trip to a property in Wisconsin that he grew up gun hunting. Now, Giannis and I talked a lot leading into this hunt about all sorts of different ideas and strategies. He was listening to Wired Hunt podcast and he was pretty pumped to get out there and try a bunch of this crazy whitetail stuff that we talk about here, but which he never really had a chance to try back when he was hunting whitetails in his teenage days. So very interesting to see a really experienced Western hunter like this come back to the Midwest and and try to explore this different aspect of hunting. And, and that hunt, it happened last month. Uh, spoiler alert, he did not fill his tag, but he had a great experience and some interesting learning experiences. So today what I want to do was get Giannis on the show to debrief on what happened on that hunt, the challenges he's faced, uh, what went well, what he struggled with trying to take his whitetail game to this new level and, and maybe what he was able to learn from all of this too. And that last aspect, that's I think what I'm the very most interested in, which is how can Giannis or you and I better learn from a quote unquote failed hunt or really any hunt for that matter. How can we learn from a hunt? How can we learn from a hunting season? Um, you know, I I know that for some of you listening, maybe that's not something you're worried about, for you, maybe hunting is just an opportunity to relax and have a good time and, and you don't want to overthink things in that kind of way. You just want to enjoy it. And that is that is absolutely fine and dandy and great. Uh, I think you're going to enjoy Giannis' story just for the sake of a good hunting story. Um, but I also I also know that there's a lot of you out there like me who are driven to just go deeper and deeper into this thing and constantly find ways to fine tune what you're doing and take your hunting experience to the next level. And so for those of you out there like that, I want to spend some time here today talking about this larger idea of how do we learn from a hunt? You know, it's something we talk about on this podcast a lot, but usually pretty generically, you know something 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 you got to learn from your experiences or yada 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 as long as you learn from a hunt it wasn't a failure uh, you've heard me say that kind of stuff or you heard Dan say that kind of stuff but you know how do you actually do that and is it really just that easy as you know going out there hunting screwing things up or doing something and then saying well i learned this lesson i i don't think it is that easy at least from my experience i think there's more to it than that or at least there can be more to it if we have a little bit of a more thoughtful way of trying to learn from these things. So over the past year or so, uh, I've been doing a lot of reading and studying about this, in particular, you know, studying decision making, and how to analyze your decisions. And how do you learn from your outcomes? How do you how do you come to some kind of clear takeaway that you can, you know, move forward from? Uh, I know this is some some nerdy stuff. Um, and it's it's, it's usually written about and thought about in the context of something like business or war or poker or other strategy-based activities. But I just see so many parallels to hunting, especially whitetail hunting, because whitetail hunting, right? Is, as many of you guys know, it's, it's very strategy focused. You know, once you understand the basics of deer biology and behavior and, and some kind of standard foundational elements of hunting strategy, from there, it all comes down to decision-making, right? Right what am I going to do today based on all the stuff I know? Do I sit there or there? Do I hunt today or tomorrow? Uh, Do I, you know, take this risky move or not? And then learning from all those things. So here we are in December. And for a lot of us, probably most of us, there's a bunch of hunts in our rear view mirror, a bunch of decisions have been made. And some turned out well, some maybe not so well. And the question now is, at least for me, is how do we learn from that? What do we do different next time? What do we do the same next time? What should we be thinking about as we plan our next hunt or our next sit or what the hell we're going to do in 2021? I'm going to talk about some of these things with Giannis and I want to hear his thoughts. But before that, I want to lay out some ideas that I want all of us to keep in mind as we listen to Giannis. And that. I'm hoping that you can try to put into action for yourself when all this is over. So as I mentioned, I've been doing a bunch of reading on this. Um, a couple of the most interesting books on this topic were written by a woman named Annie Duke. And she's a former professional poker player who then applied a bunch of the decision-making strategies and analyses from poker um, and, and and taking all that and apply it to the business world and other places. So she's got some really interesting ideas. I'm going to share some quotes and ideas from her books. Um, for reference, if you do want to take a look at these, the books are one titled thinking and bets, making smarter decisions when you don't have all the facts. And then secondly, how to decide simple tools for making better decisions. Some good books here. I definitely recommend them. Um, so let's get into a couple ideas here. I think it's, I think it's fair to say that one of the keys to getting better after an, uh, you know, an unfilled tag or a failed hunt, right? It's, it's learning from that. And if that's the case, we need to understand what can help us learn from an experience or a hunt and what keeps us from doing that. And there's a couple things that Annie talks a lot about in these books that keep us from learning, keep us from being able to accurately judge our decisions. And they're something that are referred to as cognitive biases. And basically cognitive bias is a fancy word for a mental shortcut that our brains make to kind of make life easier. There are are ways that the brain kind of jumps to assumptions that, that oftentimes are right, but sometimes they're not. And they can lead to mistakes in our thinking. The first one of these is something you've heard me mention a few times this season as I've been thinking about this and it's called resulting. And resulting, you know, I'll quote the definition here from the book is, is the tendency to look at whether a result was good or bad to figure out whether a decision was good or bad. So in other words, it makes you think you know something about the quality of decision because you know of the outcome. So because this bad thing happened, my decision was bad. Or because this good thing happened, my decision was good. But sometimes that's not the case. So for example, let's say I make a decision to hunt a certain tree based off a bunch of stuff, trail cam picks, wind direction, and observation, so on. But then the hunt progresses and I see the buck I was targeting and he moved a hundred yards away. Now, given that result, it would be easy for me to say, well, that was a bad decision to hunt from this tree because the buck was hundred yards away and didn't kill him. So bad decision because of that bad outcome, but maybe it was a damn good decision based off of everything I knew. Uh, but it was just outside factors or luck that influenced where that buck was and kept the outcome from matching that good decision, right? There was a whole bunch of different potential outcomes, even though it might've been a really good decision to be there based off of what I knew. If we give in to this tendency to focus just on that result and let the result dictate how we judge our decisions, aka resulting, it skews our ability to learn from those experiences. Now here's another one of these tendencies that we humans have that mess up our ability to learn, and it's called hindsight bias. And this is the tendency to believe that an event after it occurs was predictable or inevitable, right? Something happens. And then after it happened, we will sometimes say, well, of course it happened. Um, it's that whole hindsight's 2020 kind of thing. So for example, we decide to go sit the corner Oak tree on a hunch and a big buck comes rolling through and you get a shot and after that happens, you look back on it and you know, the power of hindsight bias will make a lot of us jump to the conclusion that, yeah, of course it happened. I sat there because, you know, there was two trials that came together, and yeah, it worked out just like I planned it. I knew I knew this was going to be where it would happen, right? I know you all have a buddy who will tell you this story, and man, just like I called it, I knew it was going to happen. But in reality, yeah, it did happen, but there were plenty of other outcomes that were possible. This time it panned out, but if we're being honest with ourselves, and if we honestly think through our decision process and how we executed on it, was it really just right? or we maybe giving ourselves a little bit too much credit sometimes. And if we do that too often, if we start patting ourselves on the back too often, if we look at things and say, well, of course that happened that way, sometimes that's going to start impacting our future decisions too. Now, the same thing can be said on the flip side, when the outcomes didn't go our way, and you see the buck traveling off in the distance and you tell yourself, dang it, I should have known that. Of course he'd be over there. But really, you know, this hindsight bias is something we've got to watch out for. So these two little mental shortcuts resulting in hindsight bias, these things can mess with our ability to learn from experiences. Um, you know, they can keep us from analyzing a hunt clearly or, or learning from a decision clearly. So here are two things to think about that can, that can help us battle that, I guess. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read two quotes here from one of these Annie Duke books that I think are, are pretty key here. Number one, what makes a decision great is not that it has a great outcome. A great decision is the result of a good process. So thinking about the process, not the outcome, but the process. And then number two, to assess the quality of a decision and to learn from experience, you need to evaluate your state of mind honestly and recall what was knowable and what was not knowable as accurately as possible. So. One of the keys to determining decision quality or, you know, learning something from a hunter and experience is to think more about the decision process than the actual outcome. Clearly remembering and identifying what did I know as I was trying to make that decision? What did I know? What did I not know? What couldn't I have known? And being able to separate those two things from, you know, the future and from what the actual outcome was. And then you got to think about, you know, okay, okay. This is what I knew. This is what I couldn't have known. Now, what was the whole process? Given what I knew, now that I've had time to thoroughly think it through, did I use that information to put myself in the right position? And then did I execute on that decision and that idea the way that it could have? Did I just not have enough information? Or did I have the right information, but I just got lazy or tired or sloppy? This this step here, this idea of reflecting back on your hunts, and thinking through not just the outcomes of your time, but the process you took. I think that is what's actually going to help us get better. And here's the real kicker though. And a really important point that I think Annie makes. And it's it's so true when it comes to hunting. She says, a lot of experience can be an excellent teacher. But a single experience, not so much. Think about that. Let me say that again. A lot of experience can be an excellent teacher but a single experience, not so much. So, so one single hunt, one single decision, one single outcome, that shit can fool you. Sometimes things happen because you made a great decision, but sometimes things happen because of good luck or on the flip side, because of bad luck. If we focus too much on any one single data point or one single experience, we're at risk of being fooled by randomness. But if, if on the, you know, on the flip side, we focus on the entirety of our experiences or the averages, the trends, the overall sum of our progress. I think that's when we can start getting a more clear and honest picture of what's happening and how our changes in process are either helping or hurting us. So here's what I want you guys to try to do. If you're willing to play along with me here a little bit, while you listen to Giannis and I break down his hunt, don't just listen to his story, but also try to listen for examples of this resulting or listen for examples of hindsight bias, you know, as Giannis is discussing what he's doing, you know, listen to his decision-making process and how he interpreted the outcomes he saw and use this as a little bit of a trial run for your own future reflections. You know, I didn't tell Giannis about any of this kind of stuff leading up to it. So he's just recounting what happened and questioning his decisions and all that just naturally. Um, and it's a fun story on its own, but I think it's, it's, it's interesting to hear how he worked all of this and then think about that through the lens of what I just told you. These, these tools, these biases to watch out for and these these ways to think through things a little bit differently. So when you're done listening to the to this story, the next time you've got a long car ride or maybe on your next morning run or during a long shower, try to apply a little bit of this thinking to your own hunting season or maybe your most recent hunting trip Think through the decisions you made and the outcomes that came from those and then the conclusions you drew from. Push yourself to consider whether or not resulting or hindsight bias might have clouded your vision a little bit. Try to pick apart that process and be honest about it. Be honest about what you could have known in the moment and what you couldn't have. Try to remove the stuff that you discovered later. Like, yeah, the big buck jumped the string and you missed him. Or yeah, the big buck came out over here. Or yeah, the neighbors there was 15 neighbors hunting on the other property and you know that stuff after your decisions, but try to think about what did you know in the moment when you were deciding what to do and when you were actually doing it. And also then think about not just one single moment or experience or decision, but the sum of those experiences. So we're not going to be fooled by one single data point. We're not going to be fooled by randomness and we're going to look at the, the sum of the whole. And then after all that, after all that thinking and reflecting and picking things apart a little bit, I think then you can have some useful, clear uh, takeaways. And my one thought on that is to is to try to focus your takeaways to just maybe one or two things. Um, at least for me, it can be easy to, you know, look back on my hunt. Let's say look back on my hunt for Tran, right? You've heard me talk about that and reflect on that. And I could sit here and I could list off like three, four, five, six different things that I learned from this hunt and that maybe, you know, I want to incorporate into future hunts or that I want to change some different takeaways, some lessons learned. Um, If you do that though, it's really easy to get overwhelmed by all that. And then none of it stick. On the flip side, if you can focus on just one or two things and say, okay, from this hunt or this season, these are my two big takeaways. These are the two things I want to get better at or that I want to do different or that I have to remember for next time around, if you can have it focused there, you've got a much better chance of actually being able to take action on them and to actually do something with. It's like a new year's resolution, right? If you've got 15 new year's resolutions, you're not going to keep any of them. But if you've got one of them and it's achievable and actionable and clear, then you got a chance. So, so that's, that's my, that's my homework for you, I guess. Um, I know you sure as hell didn't want homework from me. So sorry about that. But but if you're if you're game for this, try to come up with a couple things. Keep it tight. Keep it actionable. Keep it achievable. And write it down. You know, and maybe this is something that's best done at the end of the year when your whole hunting season's done. But maybe maybe not. Write down these couple things, and you know, leading into 2021, you've got something to work with. You've you've been able to take a clear look at what you did. You're able to have a clear, accurate, and honest understanding of your process and have a few actionable items to think about or to to move on. So there you go. It's a lot to think about there, I realize. Um, maybe I lost a couple of you, but for those of you that are still here with me, uh, I think and I hope that this is going to be a helpful framework for us to have in place as we dive into this conversation with Giannis. Um, so there you go. I think enough of me rambling. Let's just get into Giannis' story, think about these things, enjoy this, and uh, I hope you find it helpful. All right, with me on the line now is my buddy Giannis Pertelis. Gianni, thanks for, uh, thanks for joining him here on the show.
2: No, thanks for taking the time to uh, make me a better whitetail hunter, Mark.
1: Well, I got to tell you, it has been, it's been fun seeing you kind of get re-excited about whitetails this year and getting these random text messages and phone calls from you, picking my brain about this thing or that, uh, because I'm not used to that from you and I'm, I'm digging it and I'm hoping you're going to keep, keep on the whitetail train. So (laughs) are you you feeling like it's going to continue or was this a one and done?
2: No, for sure. As, as long as they, when I say they, you know, that the powers that be, uh, if I did a good enough job with my whitetail hunt this year and made some good entertaining content, then hopefully they will let me do it again uh, next year. And uh, yeah, I think I plan on being back in the on the same ground for, well, uh, that's something we can talk about. I don't know if it'll be the same dates, um, but roughly during that, somewhere in that three-week peak period, white tail period I'd like to be back um hanging in hanging off out of a tree for you know a solid week or so for sure
1: so what I wanted to do here uh was you know basically take a conversation I think you and I wanted to have anyways which was hearing about how your hunt went and you know kind of dissecting and maybe doing almost an autopsy of the experience. You know, what were you thinking leading up to it? What happened during the hunt itself? Um, You know, were there things you could have done differently? Were there things you did right? I kind of want to walk through the whole hunt, your whole experience, kind of diving back into the whitetail thing after you've been somewhat removed from it over the past couple decades. And in seeing if not only can you learn something from this hunt, but maybe there's some opportunities to to help everybody else learn how to kind of dissect their own experiences. Cause this is something I'm always trying to do myself. Um, and you've heard some of my past podcasts, Yanni, you hear me lots of times trying to analyze what I was thinking in a given moment, or did I make the right decision here? Should I have done something differently? And at least for me, I kind of geek out about this constant fine tuning and polishing of what I'm trying to do. Um, and I hope that's something that people can take away from this and do themselves. So this seems like a perfect case study. Um, and then the goal would hopefully be that you come out of this having found something valuable too. Uh, so are you are you game for that, for me to just start picking it away at everything you did and see what we can find?
2: Oh, yeah, please, please. Like I, like I said, uh, before we started recording, I think I'm going to get more out of this than, uh, than your listeners. Um, but ho- hopefully it's of equal value to, uh, both them and, and me, but, uh, yeah, man, have at it.
1: Well, let's set it up a little bit because right. You, you, grew up having done some whitetail hunting and then you, you headed out West and started chasing all sorts of other things. Can you just lay the groundwork as far as what those early whitetail experiences were? Like how, did, what did you have coming into this from your past?
2: Yeah. So, you know, I started hunting white tails. I don't know. I probably started sitting in the blind with my dad at 10 or so. And I think I could hunt at 12. I can't remember which state was which. What is it in Michigan now? 12 or 14?
1: It's, it's, it's removed. Now, if you've got a mentor with you, you can start hunting super young, but it used to be, I think 13 with a bow or 13. I don't know. 12 with a bow, 13 with a gun, something, something like that.
2: Yeah. Anywho, right about that age I started you know carrying a gun a few years later got a bow started shooting a bow a little bit and um man it's hard to put an exact number on it but definitely there was a a couple of falls before I left because I left Michigan when I was 18 I believe uh to move out to Colorado so there was probably two or three falls there where know i probably spent a dozen days or you know hunts in in a tree stand on my own with the bow um had took a few shots never killed one um over the years i don't know killed probably 10 does and a three four small you know basket rack michigan special bucks and um i know in wisconsin i killed like a a crotchet horn was my first buck in wisconsin and I think i was probably 16 ish when i killed that um so as much as i say like i grew up whitetail hunting you know i think i left right as at the point in time where i could have gotten kind of real serious about it and i know some people get more serious earlier but um for me i think it you know roughly at the age of 18 i probably could have started you know really you know focusing in on it and i just was was gone you know so there's some ex- whitetail experience, but it's definitely limited. And then over the course of the next 20 years, I would go back probably every three or four years to Wisconsin and just hunt the gun opener. And then the following two days, um, all on the same property that I hunted this year for a full seven days. So um, there's definitely some familiarity, but I think one thing I learned this week, like big time, Is just how, you know, the different levels of familiarity, right? You think you sort of know a place and then spending a whole week there, like just pounding it, I just have a whole different view on it now. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. And you and I were talking the other day about how, you know, just going from being in a situation that you're typically in. Out west in Montana or Colorado or wherever, chasing elk, mule deer, all the stuff you've been doing over the last twenty years, you obviously have, you know, developed a, a real level of expertise doing that stuff. But then you go back to something you did a long time ago, and it's it's a little bit humbling being put in a slightly different position now, right? When you headed back to Wisconsin, taking on this you know, hunting in a different kind of way, bow hunting during the rut, pounding it for seven days. Uh, what was that like for you just going from something you're super comfortable with to now back in a different type of situation and kind of, I don't know if I want to say you were, I'm not sure exactly what the right word would be, but but in outside of your comfort zone in a weird way, I guess.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think mostly what I noticed there with that was that, I just, I lack the confidence in decision-making, you know, because even though I haven't done a lot of it, um, you know, I spent a couple years ago, you and I hunted in Michigan kind of on the same hunt and I spent, you know, three or four days in a tree stand. Uh, Um, although I, I hadn't really like picked locations there. We kind of showed up and you were like, yeah, go sit here. Um, so I didn't really have to do much of the homework, but, um, yeah, it was just like the lack of confidence. Like when I'm in the woods out here out west, I just sort of have like like I know I'm maybe not making the right decision, but I have confidence in my decision and I go and execute on it and you know let the chips fall. But that week in Wisconsin this year, I was just constantly just battling my in my head like should I stay should I go you know th- just this classic FOMO mm-hmm. of, of fear of missing out of what's going on over the next ridge and should I give it some more time or should I not is it too windy to be on a top um is if I go off the ridge top, is the wind gonna suck you know um so yeah because these days with so much information out there you know listening to all your podcasts and listening and watching the hunting public guys, um, you know, reading stuff. There's just so much out there that you sort of like gain like us like going into it before you get on your boots on the ground. You kind of have a false sense of confidence. Especially when you got twenty trail cameras out and you've got like, you know, six or more like happy to shoot kind of bucks. And then you all sudden you have to put it all, you know, put the boots on the ground and make it happen. And then you realize that like, Oh, it's not going to be that easy. It's just like, everybody makes it sound like on every podcast.
1: <laughs> yeah. You know? So, so set me up with the place. This is somewhere that you have hunted in the past, but never liked this. This is somewhere in Wisconsin kind of paint the scene a little bit for what you were heading into.
2: Yeah, we're up in a kind of like pretty central, like over by Eau Claire, uh, lacrosse are kind of the two nearest bigger towns um what's interesting about this property is that it lacks any real agriculture like we have a couple small fields that are on the neighbors on one side of us but other than that it's just all big oak woods you know and it's been it's been managed you know to had you know cuts done on it over the years and so you have you know, like the poplar and, and, uh, maple, you know, kind of younger thickets, you know, here and there. Um, but there's just, there's, it lacks that edge habitat, you know, that (laughs) if I was going to go and like, just pick a place to go hunt, I would like find a place that had a lot of edge habitat. Right. Cause it Mm -hmm. seems like, like deer like it. And also seems like a good place to ambush deer is on those edges. Um, and it's got a lot of topography for whitetail country i mean it's not quite the you know whitetail country of montana but like it's got ridges that go two to three hundred feet up from the bottom and definitely has stuff that's deep enough to you know that I could, that you could ski and it's sort of just like this interconnected woven it's either you can say that the ridges are connected or the bowls are connected you know through saddles however you want to look at it but like A lot of ups and downs, a lot of little finger ridges popping off the main ridges. Um, It's a place where when you're taking the ridge out, you know, before Onyx, boy, there's a lot of times where if you, you know, take the finger ridge down too early and don't walk the extra 50 or 75 yards to stay on the main ridge, you know, you end up going into a hell hole and then having to walk around another ridge versus taking the easy way home. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. Um, it can just, you know, and it, it all looks the same. We have it so easy for navigating out West, uh, you know, with big mountains, it's just easy to, you know, know which way is downhill and which way to go. And when you get into, you know, um, not that this train is flatter, but it's just more covered in vegetation, I guess. So it's always, it's harder to just see, you know, around you and just kind of go, oh yeah, there's the, you know, sun in the South or whatever, um. So, anyways, yeah, big ridges, big bowls, uh, all hardwoods, um, and um, what else do I want to say about it. Um, Is
1: there anyone hunting it other than you?
2: I mean, there's a, a, a pretty good group of guys that all hunt it over rifle season. Um, you know, uh, and this year it's in the last couple of years, some of the older fellows have retired. So they're this year, they actually put in, uh, two weekends over rifle season, but, uh, otherwise, no, nobody really hunting it for, for both season. Um, I mean, every now and then, you know, someone might come and put a day or two in, but it's fairly unmolested.
1: Okay. So, so then a, what?
2: About 400 acres is about what I had access to.
1: Nice. So then what was the game or what was the the prep work that you put into it leading up to the hunt? Were you able to come out and scout or do anything in the spring or summer? Or was this, you know, y- your dad hung some cameras and then you came right out during this, the actual hunt.
2: Yeah. So I didn't get to make it out there. I, I, I tried, thought about it. Um, in retrospect, I think it's, I, there's some things I could have done. I don't know if I would have done these things that I would now do if, with the trip in the summertime. But um, <clears throat> yeah, so I didn't make it. So really, I just poured over, you know, the topography uh, layer on on Onyx probably more than anything as as far as like digital scouting goes and just really try to just from what I know from like general deer movement on this property and then really just try to fine tune it and and look and like pick my saddles because like everybody knows, right? Like rich country, it just seems like saddles, you know our, our places where deer travel, you know, so I just really try to bear down on those and figure out, you know, where I should try and, you know, set some, you know, set a stand up. Now my dad did hang, I don't know, approximately 20 cameras. I think we had like eight of the, uh, moultrie, um, cell cameras and then a dozen or so of just the, uh, the, the standard cameras. um, he did most of the the work on the ground. Um, I kept asking him to find me like the thickest bedding cover, and it was something that just never really materialized out of him. <laughs> I've I've come to realize that my dad at seventy, you know, I can have a long list, a long to do list, and um, he's only got so much energy, you know yeah. what I mean. So like, where you and I could go and cover seven miles and pretty much cover the whole place and be like, all right, here's the, you know, four main really thick looking bedding areas, you know, that, that took all summer and more, um, to get out of him. So he did preset, um, I think six or seven tree stands for himself. Um, which I wasn't too worried about. I mean, I helped him pick locations and again, we used just historical, you know, data and then, and then just where we had seen a lot of activity, you know, from the cameras, um, and then, you know, he picks he picked whatever it was, six or seven spots to, to set up uh, uh, his tree stand. The guys from River's Edge actually came out and helped him, just like they helped you on the back 40 to uh, to set up the stand. So that was super nice of them.
1: Yeah, huge help with the uh,
2: assembly of some of those things, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> for sure, it takes some time. So that was it, man. I wouldn't really call it a lot of, like, prep work, you know. I was counting on, you know – having some at least having an an inventory idea of of what we had with the cameras and knowing what was there and what um mostly just so i would know like oh okay like there are no big bucks you should just shoot the first basket six you run into or like oh no there are enough like what looked to be three to four year old deer to they, i could hold out and try to get a shot at one of them you know
1: yeah. So, so walk me through where your dad ended up putting some of these trail cameras. I know you and I had some discussions through the summer, um, but, but what ended up being the plan for where those were placed to get you that inventory?
2: Um. <clears throat> well, what happened with the cell cameras, we quickly realized that you can't just put those anywhere, you know, if you don't have the best coverage. Right. And <clears throat> it definitely seemed like we just had to be up on the, the, you could be like halfway up a, a hill and get decent, you know, reception. But if you had them on the ridge top, they were going to be working the best. Um, so we basically did, you know, what, what from what he could tell in the moment, you know, and again, he was setting them in the summertime. So it's really hard to set in the summertime when the woods don't look like they're going to look, you know, come October, November, you know um but i had a couple spots where like historically i knew there was a bunch of scrapes um he would set them there um sometimes he just like you know was walking and just you know was like all right here's two trails like you know come across this saddle i'm gonna put one here um like i said a lot of them we we put in locations that we wanted but we ended up having to move them uh we definitely put a couple down where we do have that little bit of edge habitat, where where like our woods abut the neighbor's uh, agriculture, and he had beans and uh, corn. Um, and then otherwise, yeah, just like you know, I kept telling him, just try to you know, when you're walking the boundary, or walking you know, walking the road, just look for where there's a lot of tracks crossing the road, you know, and put one up there. So. Um, yeah, that's, I guess that was our, our tactic for where to set them.
1: And, okay, walk me through then what you ended up discovering. Did you find what you were wanting to find on those cameras?
2: Yeah, well, what was really interesting is that early on, like for most of the summer, like I'd say like well, even well into October, it was as if there were no bucks living there. <laughs> like I was quite, kind of surprised. I was like, there was like literally nothing especially nothing matured, Um, and I think that, uh, sometime in those d- September, we finally got like a 10 point and it was like a, I don't know, 120, 125 inch 10 point. It was like, sweet. Like there's one, you know, <laughs> yeah. but what was amazing is that like whatever, whatever tripped them in October when they finally started moving and I, I'm guessing just had to do with the scrapes because all of a sudden, like we had one camera, it was funny. It wasn't just bucks. There was one camera my dad had set up on a place that he named like uh, mouse meadow. And I forget the reasoning behind it, but like it, it's, it's an old scrape that's been there for whatever, as long as he remembers. So he's like, yeah, I put it up on this old scrape. And I was getting to the point where I was going to tell him to yank the camera because like literally we had zero deer on this thing at all. And then all of a sudden something changed and there was does box, does box, does box like every single day hitting this scrape and coming down this ridge like to to this scrape (laughs) um so that was like that was very interesting and that happened in a lot of places um like i was telling you earlier like i had a spot where i kept telling him like please there's like there's like a ridge where you almost kind of go through a little tunnel of like just like real early growth successional growth you know i don't know if it's pulpers, maples whatever that are have grown in and it's probably been five to 10 years and it's kind of like you go through a tunnel almost. It's so, it's so thick on this ridge top, you know, and we've got it cut open just as a trail. And right when it pops out, you kind of, you're on a uh, kind of a three way where the ridges intersect and there's always, you know, scrapes there. And I had him put one up there and the same thing there for like, but when he finally put it up there, that was getting towards the end of the summer, but still two weeks, nothing. Nothing, 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 and then all of a sudden, sometime in October, it was like scrape time, and there was just constant activity in that zone
1: <laughs> and so that
2: was one of the big things that I learned, and then obviously, I learned that we, there were more bucks like more shooter type bucks around than than you know we had we had previously thought, you know
1: how many do you think
2: mm, I think we had like. Trying not to count the neighbors because the neighbor sent me some pictures too of bucks that we never even got pictures of. But we probably had like two or three 10 points, two eights. We had one that we called the straight eight because he just had these main beams that just like were out and then went just straight out in front of his nose. No more curve, you know, no more <laughs> curve up or in, just like straight out. And then we had another one that we called like the big eight, and he just had a little bit bigger frame. And a main beam that like curved and it curved up at the end. Curved up so much that it would almost make him look like a 10 in some pictures, you know, because the main beam would kind of throw you off because it kind of pointed upward. Um, And then uh, we had one kind of non-typical, you know, I don't know, I'd I'd call him a giant. We never, never got to see him in, in daylight. It was only on nighttime pictures, but it was like a, I don't know. He, he had plenty of little stickers and points and he, he, he's a, he's a big giant buck, you know, definitely like a, you know, one fifty plus kind of buck. Um, so I don't know, I'd say at least six, maybe eight bucks that I'd be like super happy to shoot. You know, what, what
1: did you think about, and maybe, maybe this isn't the case. I don't know how you guys did things back when you're guiding elk hunts and stuff, but was this, interesting situation going into a hunt knowing like, okay, these are the bucks that I can probably expect to see. And you, you sort of were setting expectations based on that. Um, did that feel different compared to when you head out into Colorado or the mountains of Montana or something, don't really know what's up there. Um, or was this not too different and you were just going to kind of set your goals as you went?
2: Yeah. I mean, I just, I wasn't, I wouldn't say I was like hunting particular bucks. Because I just I quickly realized that, man, I just didn't have it dialed in enough to be like, oh, yeah, the you know, the big eight is always running this ridge or he's been seen here a bunch or this is his favorite travel route. And maybe this is where he beds like I didn't have any really thoughts like that. So I was going out there just thinking like, okay I'm going to just like shoot, you know, something that looks more like he's two, three, four years old and not a one year old, you know, and, um, there's plenty of them out there that I should have an opportunity in seven days of hunting.
1: Yeah. Okay. So do
2: you, I mean, it was cool to know that there was like some big bucks roaming around, but I I definitely wasn't like zeroing in on one of them.
1: What about that big giant buck though? I know that that got you a little excited. Was there any part of you that when you started hunting, you were thinking, man, should I, should I be patient these first couple of days because there's this this super big guy out here, or or were you honestly that realistic from day one, and you were thinking, ah, eh, he's probably not around?
2: Well, I will say because like we rolled in in the evening and I didn't really have like a, a spot set for the morning, and the one of the few spots where like I, I have walked it and been there enough where I literally knew like I could go in there in the dark and probably get into a tree without a lot of commotion the first morning. <laughs> it was in the area where we had picked him up on camera. <laughs> so like certainly the first morning I kind of was drawn, you know, you know, towards his, his little zone where we yeah. been picking him up on camera. Um, but man, just like, yeah, I, I'd say I guess I was pretty realistic then. Cause I just knew that I just didn't have enough like data to be like, okay, I'm going to sit here for seven days and it's going to happen, you know?
1: Yeah. Well, walk me through what you did then. let let's, let's just hear the day by day. And I'm kind of curious from you, not only tell me what you did, but I'm also curious if you can remember like what your thought process was when you were choosing what to do or what were the things you were struggling with? Like, did you have questions? Like, were you struggling to think what the hell should I do on day one? Um, yeah. that would be interesting. And then we can kind of walk through and I might pick some of these things apart as we go
2: sure so that was open morning and i want to say that i saw i saw two deer like just cutting cutting through the woods kind of at a quick pace and it was hard to tell like if a, a buck was chasing a doe like they were that far off you know where it was just flashes and i got my binoculars up but never really couldn't identify them um but that was all i saw all morning and so I decided to pull out and then go to a place that's called the Oak Flat. And the Oak Flat, like, I didn't have a camera up there, but it was – it's basically – it borders a neighbor, and the neighbor had just, like, in the last two years, I think, pretty much clear-cut, like, a 40-acre like a chunk, right? And I just figured that that clear-cut would – for for multiple reasons in my head would be holding deer whether it was just young and thick so they'd be bedding in there maybe there'd be some like enough uh sunlight getting to it where there would be some forage that they'd want to be eaten on and so i decided to go hunt this oak flat which is on top of a ridge and i get in there and i actually bump two does like right when as i'm basically on the oak flat kind of looking for a tree to, to set up in and i'm thinking all right that's like a decent sign right there's like they were probably bedded here or they were just feeding here off this edge i, I don't know but they didn't bump too hard they just kind of scampered off and you know didn't really know what it was so i don't know if, if they just barely caught a whiff of me or what but um this oak flat has So that was like off to one side was this clear cut, but it also has like probably maybe like a 10 year old cut on another side of the flat, like coming off the steep ridge, which is super thick. And the wind was blowing kind of out of that 10 year old cut thick stuff up onto the Oak flat. So as I'm the Oak flats, maybe, I don't know, hundred yards wide or so ish. And, I just, in my head, I thought, man, if a buck comes up onto this oak flat and he's cruising and checking like a bedding area, he's going to come like closer to this thick stuff than farther away from it because he'll just be right on top of it, you know, trying to smell what's down in there maybe. So I set up like, if you divide it into thirds, probably a third of the way closer to like this thick edge that dropped off and I could still see the whole oak flat um you know in the other directions so you know it felt good it was a good tree what i found interesting too is like just learning how to pick trees like quickly you know when you're when you're saddle hunting um yeah these like in this big oak forest and on a, like an oak flat like that where it's like a lot of mature trees and the leaves were like gone like you get up there and man there is not a lot of cover you know so you're like Looking for ones that have a couple extra branches poking out maybe or looking for one that is next to a white pine that, you know, might <clears throat> break up your silhouette a little bit. Yeah. This one actually I did have a nice white pine next to me kind of in my like no shooting lane, which was perfect. Well, anyways, um, I think I have a like a, a forked horn buck come in maybe, I don't know, an hour before dark. Um, I catch, I think one of those does up and feeding again out in that, the clear cut that's brand new. And then like 15 minutes left to go before dark up onto the Oak fat pops up. Like, I think it was the straight eight, It's like nice eight point buck. I'm like, sweet, you know, like from whatever distance it was less than a hundred yards. I can, nice. with binoculars, I can be like, Oh yeah, sweet, mature buck. And where'd he whatever, come out of? He kind of came he was actually paralleling walking he's kind of coming up out of a bowl and then his path was paralleling that uh the fresh new cut was on one side of him and then the, kind of the um that uh the ten-year-old cut was on the other side of him.
1: And was he on top of the ridge or side hilling?
2: Well, he came he came straight up out of a bowl and then popped right up on top of the ridge. Okay. He got up there and then for whatever reason, instead of like as soon as he popped up, taking a right like I thought he would and then coming along that edge that would have brought him, you know, right into like where I was hoping he would walk and he would continue to basically scent check that super thick stuff that he – he'd kind of come out of it, but, but he'd kind of come off the edge of it. You know what I mean? Like he, he – it didn't seem like he had come right out of the thickest part of it, you know, just knowing what was below me. Well when he pops up on the oak flat my wind is you know pretty much going the same direction he's traveling right so if he takes a right immediately he's going to come across the wind and never catch my wind but for whatever reason he goes almost across the oak flat and gets like downwind but he's we're still he, I still have like a parallel wind and then he then he takes the right and basically comes and then You could tell he was – he had actually turned and was going to come back across the oak flat to – I don't know where he was going to go at that point. At this point, I'm just guessing. But he had made the turn, and then literally as he made the turn to come back towards me – and this is probably – I don't know. When he popped up, he was probably 60 yards, and then he went, stayed at roughly 60 yards, maybe 70, made that turn – and then was going to come back towards me, but at that point he caught my caught my wind, and um, that was it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, it's, it's so funny because you're watching. You're like, oh yeah, these big bucks are going to be so stupid. It's November fifth. You know, I'll get away with everything. It's like, well, you get away with everything except for when they smell you. you uh,
1: know? <laughs> yeah. So, do you looking on that then that night? Given what you knew. If, if you took the fact of the, of what he actually did, but do, do you feel like you were set up in about the best place you could have been given the information available or after watching that night, did you learn something that would have changed your thought process next time around up there?
2: Mm. Man, it's a tough call. You know, we saw I, I sat that oak flat probably phew, at least three more hunts Three or four more hunts. That's probably like the one spot that I spent the most time in because I was having, um, you know, continual success there, right? Like I was at least seeing deer there, even if it wasn't like a mature buck. Um, and when it, the following days when I set up, I set up probably 30, 40 yards more downwind. It was interesting. We had a south wind pretty much the whole week, which.
1: That was the hot <laughs> week, wasn't it?
2: yeah very 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 warm um i think a lot of people battled that in the upper midwest uh that first week of november this year um but yeah it was just like the south wind so a lot of my planning in my head you know when i was like looking at saddles and and just like thinking about where to put stands everything in my head was like well you're going to set up for a west wind because that's just going to be like more than likely what you're going to be dealing with you know and um so that really threw me off was to constantly have to go in there and be like okay no it's going to be south wind south wind you know. And so the when I set up consequently I was I was setting up more downwind and I think every deer that pretty much came onto that flat like I I would have gotten close to getting a shot on them, you know. Um but the flat's just big enough, you know what I mean, where you can't cover it all if you decide to set up like on the actual downwind side, you know. Yeah. Um And a lot of these, like, where these ridges break off and fall off, if you get right on that edge and the wind's blowing anything more than four or five miles an hour, I feel like that your wind's kind of getting blown out into, I don't know, just, like, the universe as opposed (laughs) to, like, kind of falling down the hill, you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, you'll blow over top of anything, right, that comes close.
2: Yeah, so you're almost, like, getting the best of both worlds because even if something comes... Up the hill, downwind of you, there's a really good chance that your wind's blowing over the top of them, right? So, anyways, yeah, that's what I did the the following sets, Um, and I had like a uh, I forget what it was, it's like a either either a forked horn or maybe like a real small six that uh, that I messed around with came in and um, one of those blocks that like really anxious, right? Like comes by once. Didn't make it within range, so I let him get to like, you know, just where I could barely see him. Grunted at him. Then he came all the way back, came, went downwind of us. Definitely could tell he was smelling us, and then came right back under the tree again. <laughs> <laughs> asking um, for trouble. Yeah, asking for trouble. <clears throat> but it was early in the hunt, so I'm like, ah, I'll let you go. It's gonna yeah. get better. Man, um, what,
1: what about uh, what about, you know, scent control? Is that something you did? you run the Western route, which is just play the wind and don't worry about stuff, or did you try to adopt some of the Whitetail fanatic uh, approach and do some stuff to minimize a little? What'd you do on that front?
2: Uh, not too much. A uh, couple bottles of the scent away, we're kicking around. You know, we would spray ourselves. You know, periodically, we let we did leave our hunting clothes outside. You know, we wore rubber boots. All right. Um, while we hunted, but and you know, being that like, it's two of us, right. Cause we're, we're videoing it. And the fact that we were like doing some pretty serious walking, it wasn't like mega hikes, but like, you know, a solid, like 15, 20 minute hoof in the dark is definitely enough to like, you know, if you're not dressed properly, if you've got too many clothes on, you're going to get lathered up a little bit. Yeah. So, um, I was, de- and, and you know what? I can't tell if it helped or not because anytime like a deer got directly downwind, um, it seemed like they were on to me. You know. Yeah,
1: yeah, it's 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 really hard with a cameraman. I definitely agree with that. I I, I feel like if I do everything just as best as I possibly can when I'm solo. I can maybe get away with it 30% of the time, you know, 30, 35% of the time, something like that. The rest of the time I'm getting winded, but I get away with it a few times. But when you've got another person up there with all the additional possibilities that come with that, it's, it's really hard. Although we definitely had a few, uh, examples this year on the back 40, where we at least got deer that were confused. Um, but I'm running things even you know, further than what you described with also using ozone too. But with two guys in the tree, both of us being super serious and and having what's it's called an Ozonics machine. So it blows some ozone out there, which foils things up a little bit more even. We had a couple times where bucks would get downwind of us and know something was up, but not enough that they boogered out of there right away. And actually that was the buck I ended up killing on the back 40 that happened on the very first night of our hunt. He got downwind and was just, eh, I don't love it, but there's a bunch of does around and I'm more interested in that. And so it's, it's one of those things that sometimes it can help. Sometimes it doesn't, but, uh, I don't know. It's, it's for me, I usually err on the side of, I'd rather do too much to than too little, but I don't know. It's tough with the cameraman. Like you said, uh, I digress though. Another thing on the f- this first night's hunt, you talked about getting into this oak flat and trying to pick a tree and mm-hmm. how so many of them lack cover. Did you find yourself having to sacrifice it all on the spot you wanted to be to get cover? Because this is like a, a a thing I'm always battling with. Do you pick the tree that is in a slightly less than ideal location, but it's got great cover and you know, you're not going to get busted or do you get in the perfect location in a subpar tree where it's, you know, a little more risky, but you're in this spot. What did you have to do in this time, in this example?
2: You know, I, I got lucky and there was, there was enough good solid oaks to climb up there. And like I said, just a couple like a little smattering of, of white pines. Um, that it seemed to work and we even had like i think the second tree we chose for the for the follower following sits it had like a nice v right at you know the height that we were setting up you know so it gave us a little bit more cover um but yeah just in general throughout the week you're definitely weighing that a lot you know along with i mean i don't know if you want to get into that now but like just the prep that goes into, you know, picking your spot, you know, and how much that weighs into which tree you're going to get into because you can get into one where there's, you know, almost zero, you know, shooting lanes needed to cut and just a few limbs on the way up. Um, But it's like way too open. Right. But then if you go 10 yards over, you know, to get a little bit more cover the next tree that's, you know, whatever. Yeah. Just giving you more cover all of a sudden you got like you went from four shooting lanes down to one and it's not the best one um and then you've also got to cut you know 20 limbs and make a racket going up the tree yeah Um, yeah. a a lot of that
1: did you find yourself erring towards one of those extremes or the other
2: man (laughs) no not really it's just Cause again, it's like, you know, days are short, you know, you, you I, we would, I would sit until, you know, never came down probably earlier than like 10, 30, 11. And so if you sat till like one, it's getting dark at whatever it was five 30. And so you've only got so much time left. Right. So mm-hmm. you just have to like, if you're going to a new spot, there's not a lot of time to be walking around and and plus you don't want to walk around too much and stink the place up and so a lot of times i'm just i was probably hasty um and that's something i thought about retrospectively too is like what i probably could have done some nights and i actually did it one night is i actually because i just wasn't feeling my spot i just got out of the tree and just kind of sort of still hunted my way up this road where i thought i might intercept something but there's probably other times where i had like just the setup wasn't right or the wind was wrong or whatever. And I should have just gotten out of the tree and went for a walk, you know, and went and done, did some still hunting and see if I could make something happen as opposed to just sitting there and and cussing the wind, you know, Mm -hmm.
1: that's hard to do though. Really hard hard. to bail on a hunt like that.
2: It's going to lay out and it's going to get good. Or you're like, the app keeps saying that it's supposed to be straight yeah. out of the south. <laughs> Why is it blowing out of the north on me right now? You
0: know? <laughs> um, oh, yeah.
2: That was tricky in that rich country. is And I think that happened to me a couple, couple sets is where I think I was getting like a recirculating wind maybe. Right? So it was like blowing off the top of a big ridge and then somehow like turning underneath itself and then blowing back against it like midway yeah. right where I was set up and um you know obviously you're like i'm like looking up this ridge expecting these deer to come down it towards me and, and the you know the wind's blowing right at it um but yeah hindsight's twenty twenty.
0: pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service it's called the wellness company picture this okay you wake up you got a scratchy throat you're all congested you got a runny nose you got a cough whatever and you weigh your options like you tough it out get sick Get 15% off at UrgentCareKit.com slash meat eater and use promo code meat eater. That's promo code meat eater at urgentcarekit.com slash meat eater. Hey everybody knows Weber Grills. I've been using Weber grills my whole life and check it out. They got a pellet grill, the Weber Searwood Pellet Grill. Now with a pellet grill, you can smoke, roast, and sear what I like to do. On the same grill. You can go from low and slow okay, on smoke boost mode, which gives you great smoke at 180 degrees, or crank this thing all the way to a heat sear at 600 degrees. It's got a full, great sear zone, so you can put more food on the flame. This this, this is my way of bowl saying If I was going to cook roast one way, that's how I like to do it, sear roast. Utilize the smoke boost setting to intensify that smoky flavor. Direct flame cooking. Create searing, crisping, and browning. Food's going to look as good as it tastes. This grill gets hot in 15 minutes. Cleanup is easy. Cook confidently with intuitive digital controls at the grill and enjoy the sleek, easy-to-use surface. You can also add a heavy-duty rotisserie or rust-resistant griddle insert to up your game. Get fired up for your new Weber Searwood pellet grill.
1: You, you just described all this prep and work it takes to get up in these trees and, and moving around and whatnot. This is the first time this, the season at least has been the first year that you've tried using a saddle extensively like this and, and been really mobile, um, you know, elevated hunting from new places, hanging sticks up and down, you know, climbing up and down every hunt. what, what was that like for you and, and your preparation leading up to it? I know you were, you know, practicing in Montana and you did some hunts out there. Just, I'm kind of curious where your head's at. now having done it, used it over the course of a, of a good rut hunt now, what, what, what kind of prep did you need to make it work? And then when the hunt actually happened, did you feel like you were ready for that? How did it go?
2: Yeah, I shot a lot out of it, but I had it set up to where I could just like step up onto a tree and onto the uh, platform and, and clip in, you know, and, and shoot. So I felt like I did my homework there. I, I did my prep and, and I was ready to ready to shoot out of it. And the way I have it set up at my house, because that doesn't make it sound like I'm getting much of an angle, but I've got a very steep embankment kind of gully at my house. So I would climb a tree that's at the top of it just like and get two feet off the ground and then shoot down that slope which so i could shoot these like 20 yard shots that were it would it would be as if though you're like 30 feet up in a tree right Right. so very like steep angles you know and so i got all that practice in and i've got a full-size deer target um you know they'll kind of let me see you know what those arrows impact like and and Cause I think a lot of that changes too. you know, now I wasn't used to that is where, you know, you actually might have to aim a little bit higher on that animal. If you want to strike center of the, of the vitals, because if you just hit the 10 ring, but you're shooting from a 20 foot, 20 feet high in a tree, you're probably just going to hit one long and go yeah. underneath that get long, you know,
1: you got to <laughs> think about that exit.
2: But, um, otherwise, uh, I probably could have done more just like try to get in more hunts, just like actually climbing the trees. Um, but I went with the, I was using those uh, Timber Ninja, the carbon fiber sticks. Yep. And I went with the ropes. Uh, they initially had sent me the buckles. And then I saw that it, like, seemed like everybody was just running ropes and you can just use that very simple cow hitch. And so I just went and bought some, I think it was like six mil static rope and uh, put on some chunks. And, um, what I learned there is that like, (laughs) like, I think I cut them all at seven feet next year. I will have probably, and I was running four sticks next year. I'll probably run three of them at seven feet or maybe three of them at six feet and then have one that has like maybe 10 feet on it. Cause a lot of these oaks, that very first step that you attach, like I couldn't even get my arms around it. You know what I mean? And so if you don't have enough cord to get around that sucker, uh, you just get, you're gonna be SOL. And you got to go pick a different tree, you know, even if that's in the right spot. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, man, I mean, it's like it's definitely a little bit of a workout, you know, especially the farther apart you spread your <laughs> sticks, <laughs> like um, it, it takes some effort. And uh, but overall, man, I enjoyed it. It's definitely like it's sweet to just have the freedom, you know, to go anywhere and. Any kind of work that you might have, like, you know, getting up and down trees, I think it's, it's, um, outweighed by the benefit of, of just being able to set up anywhere you want, you know, uh,
1: was there any aha moment for you as you started doing it more and more where you had something click with that process that made it easier or that helped you become more efficient, um, I don't know. Was there any little trick to your system that ended up making things start flowing more smoothly?
2: Hmm. man, again, it's like you kind of, as you know, we're kind of set picking trees and ma- making sets for two people, not just one. Um, but I know that just as the week went on, I was much easier and quicker able to visualize, like where do I want my platform? What is my three o'clock that I'm not gonna like? Like that three o'clock is like that, ang- that the angle or, or, or the direction off the clock that you are least likely wanting to take a shot. Right. Um, and sort of visualizing that <clears throat> and setting the sticks up and climbing the tree so that when you get up there, you know, you put your you know, platform exactly where it needs to be and you get in there and you don't get up there and go, oh, no. I totally like I'm off by 90 degrees and like where this <laughs> main trail is, is like not like my best shot angle, you know, or my shot position. So, uh, just visualizing that, you know, just started to come together and that was smart. Um, knowing just like the the height of like where you want to put that first step, you know, my steps had those eighters, and I could pretty much take a step and, like the top of it, I would like pin it to the tree with my forehead and and run (laughs) it around and then pull and pull my aider down. And with the the fact that it would slack a little bit, the slack would come out, you know, when you, when you step on it, that would sort of put it at the right height for me to get my boot into that aider and start climbing, you know?
1: Now you're a decent bit taller than, uh, than Chris, who's your cameraman. Was yeah. he able to? Was he able to get up the steps you were hanging, or did oh, he yeah. have the same like, struggle that my cameraman sometimes has with my long-legged steps?
2: <laughs> no, nah, he was fine. He was fine. Um, I would probably even like because what I would do is when you get the first one up and you're like, oh, that's not bad, and it, and it just se- it just would seem as though I wouldn't be as confident setting the next steps as far as part and using the aider to the maximum advantage as I could. Right. Um, right. And, again, in in just these woods that I'm hunting, I feel like getting high is going to be key, um, both for wind and just for not being detected. Because it's like so many times I would just imagine like I would look through the woods and like whatever, 70 yards, like down a ridge and be like, if I was sitting in that tree right now, what would I look like? And you just imagine that and you're like, there's no cover. Like, sure, there's some branches and stuff sticking around. But, like, unless you're, like, tucked in behind the trunk of the tree, you're, like, sticking out. You know what I mean? So you can just not move, you know, and and try to blend in. But, like, if you're moving around in that open canopy, boy, I just, you know, I think getting high is important. So I'll be – next year I'll be trying to, like, you know, get the max distance with those steps and get up a little bit higher.
1: Yeah. You know uh,
2: Probably 20 feet you know, on average. Um, and I got, we got comfortable there, but you know, when you're not used to that, and even though I shot hanging out of that saddle all summer, it's just like, it's a different feeling when you're hanging at 20.
1: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. You know, two things on that, uh, on that note, one, you talked about how it was a struggle. Sometimes being able to get your step, getting your sticks, Uh, The straps around those bigger tree trunks at the beginning of a tree at the bottom, I've experienced the same thing. And so what I started doing this year, especially because this year I, I was I took my mobile hunting to a different level, too. I was moving almost every day, bouncing all over the place. And because of that, what I ended up doing was bringing two screw in steps with me as well. So I would have three sticks and then two screw-ins that I have just stick in a pocket on my backpack. So if I ever, you know, it ended up being very lightweight and, and, and not cumbersome at all. And throwing two screw-ins into a tree is, is fast and easy. And that would get me past the really fat part of a trunk. Mm-hmm. So then I, I could be I could be five feet up now or whatever with just two quick screw-ins that I do from the ground. And then once I got that high up, then the straps would fit around really easily. Um so i essentially had the height of an extra stick in you know something that just fit right into my pocket i wouldn't want to do that with 15 screw-ins and do the whole thing that that's a pain in the butt but just two of mm-hmm. them it was a nice little trick to use in certain situations well, um
2: I, I yeah get, on this st- the stick and and kind of back to scent we had dough one morning and i don't know if it like If it totally messed up my whole morning hunt, it might have played into it. There's no way to tell because I can't tell one doe from another, you know, unless she's got like a one, one white eye and one black eye or something. But she came in right as she was supposed to, cutting across this saddle and she gets right underneath us. I mean, literally underneath us. It wasn't a strong wind. Now I had like, I think it was only forecast to be like two or three, right? But it's blown enough where I'm like, I don't think my scent's dropping straight down, but she gets next to our tree and catches something. Did she catch us like when we walked in? Was she was that what she was smelling or did, was she smelling my steps on the tree?
1: I would say both. Uh, it's really hard for them not to pick up your ground scent, but then also imagine, you know, whatever was on your boots and your bare hands or your gloved hands. I'm sure there was some scent on that. Um, you know, as you're going up those steps and then where were you putting your sticks? Were those in the, in the house or were those in the bed of the truck? That could be a thing too. So I would guess a combination of both probably.
2: Right.
1: I, I, I have wondered about that too. I I keep my sticks and straps outside all the time, or at least in a bar or garage. Um, but i have wondered you know i know you laughed at me when i was spraying down trail cameras last fall right yeah. <laughs> cuz i was touching those with my bare hands but i have seen so many times where if i am not wearing gloves and i touch something or i or i walk through a brushy grassy field and then later in the day, I'll see a deer walk through there. And when they hit that trail or where they hit where I grabbed a branch and got lazy and didn't, you know, I wasn't careful about it. They can pick up on that stuff so fast. And if it's the wrong doe, you know, and the, and it's the doe that there's a buck behind or something, well, it could ruin everything, that one little thing. So yeah, I constantly am trying to find these little errors like that that i can fix next time so i'm trying to make sure i'm wearing fully gloved hands when i'm walking in so i don't have to grab and push a branch out of the way that maybe a buck will walk by and smell or those little tiny things can sometimes make the big difference so like you said you don't know if that made a difference in the long run but it could have Um, yeah
2: well so what happens is like she runs off kind of the same way she came and then like, I don't know, it was a while later, hour, maybe more later down off the saddle in this bottom below me, maybe 80 to a hundred yards, like mega crashing and, and rutting chasing activity. Right. And like the comment or like the, the sort of like the, the path of least resistance out of this bottom would be up through this saddle that I'm set up in. Well, like I get bits and pieces of deer running around there and I finally catch a glimpse of this buck. And it's probably the biggest buck that I, this is the very last morning of the hunt. The biggest buck that I've had in my binoculars all the whole hunt. I'm like, wow, like look at that. You know, like there's a mature one. And <clears throat> they run around down there for a little while. And we're far enough away that like, I, I wasn't worried that like they were picking, picking up on us, but Eventually, when they're done doing their little thing in that bottom, the dough goes not directly away from us, but definitely like just climbs up and out of this bottom and goes to a high ridge, like away from us and not towards us at all. Now, I don't know if it was the same doe and if her experience from two hours earlier, you know, like made like affected that decision in that moment, but you know, it's in the back of my head that it could have been.
1: Uh Yeah. I hear there. That's, that's one of those things. You never know what little, like it's the butterfly effect. They say like one little butterfly's wings could change everything. I have so many moments as a hunter where I wonder, was that little thing actually what resulted me not getting the shot? Or if I'd done this one small thing different yesterday, could that have changed what happened today? You never know. Um, but I do try to consider the possibilities. And, and so what you did there, you know, consider, well, that might've been a, an impact. That might've been the thing. So, so, so tell me this then as you sat there that day and were thinking about, well, shit, was that my sticks or my steps that spooked that dough and then led her to go the other direction thinking is that being a possibility? Would you have done anything differently now? Or do you think you'd try to do something differently next time around, in any kind of way with your setup or your gear or something, having the fact that yes, you've had a deer that winded something down low on a day like that and maybe screwed your opportunity.
2: I mean, <clears throat> I don't know. I don't know. I mean, all of our gear, backpacks, sticks, all that stuff. If it was back at the camp, it all stayed outside. Like on a deck where there was, it's like a covered deck but open, you know, on three sides, so it's getting plenty of, you know, breeze all the time, Um, not getting infected with smells from inside. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I mean, what do you do? Carry a bottle of scent away and just spray down your your sticks as you as you put them on the tree
1: probably probably can't do that oh <laughs> uh, that sounds like even more work than i'm willing to do <laughs> but yeah, uh, but I'm yeah.
2: Not happy that like there's like a direct route from camp to this saddle that we had set up in that would have been you know 10 minute walk and instead i did like climbed a ridge kind of the opposite direction walked a ridge top and came all the way around it probably took me 30 to 40 minutes to come in from the downwind side and not come in where I thought the deer were going to be coming to me from, and um, that that seemed to pay off. Because I think had I had I come through the bottom and straight up into that saddle, like those deer that were there in there later in the morning, they wouldn't have you know they wouldn't have been in there.
1: Yeah, interesting. Well, that certainly seems like the right way to go about with that access route. At least you know one other thing I do, which. You know, some people will think it's over the top, but a lot of things I do are over the top. I guess um, I spray vanilla extract. It's a, there's a company that makes this stuff called Nose Jammer. You maybe heard me talk about it, but I do spray a little bit of that on, like right by the tree in my first step um, every time I go up, as just like it's little. You know, basically, the idea of this stuff is that it's a very strong odor, kind of like the whole cover scent idea. It just kind of mm-hmm. overwhelms our olfactory system, and and I have seen examples of times when I thought that helped me, and so that is something I do at the base of my tree, just to just because you know that's the spot where there's a lot of human scent pooled at the bottom. Not only do you have your sticks there, but when you're getting set up, you know, to head into or to set up your tree stand or set up your sticks, you maybe had to set your backpack on the ground. You had to set your bow on the ground. You're standing there for a long time as you organize your gear and you get your stuff prepped. So that's that point where there's a lot of potential for contamination. Um, So doing that little spritz of the, of the vanilla, maybe has helped me a few times too. And, and that might be something worth considering, but everyone's got to weigh how much junk do they want to take it with them out there? You know, how much do you want to deal with? But that's, that's something to consider.
2: Um, I'll definitely have that in my pack next, next November.
1: So, so re- rewind me a little bit though, because you told me about the first hunt and now you just told me about the last <laughs> hunt. Um, <laughs> talk me through now, like day two, it sounds like day two, you decided to push, to another spot on that same Oak flat. Um, what else, what else happened after I think
2: that? I actually hunted the Oak flat the next morning. Um, so day two, I was, I was there at the break of dawn and I think that's, I don't know, somewhere around day two or three, like the heat was like overwhelming and we definitely started realizing that it's like, the deer were moving like very early and very late. Cause I I can't remember which, if that was that morning or if it was the morning after that, but we literally walked in there, red lights going and there's, there's two deer like standing right there on the Oak flat, you know, 10 yards from the tree we get up in. And so we basically just, you know, stood there and let them just kind of feed away. They didn't bump out of there, get into the tree. And just as we're finishing setting up, it's still totally dark like a deer walks, you know, definitely within shooting distance right underneath us and kind of goes the same way the other two went. And then it got light and nothing, you know, like absolutely just dead. Um, and so we just started, I definitely was starting to get the feeling like, man, I gotta like, I gotta zero in on, on something to like get a little bit closer to him, you know, or, or find the action. So, I don't know which day this was but i did i did a loop and found like an they they just cut in a new road where they're gonna get ready to do some uh logging and so the the road was fresh and soft you know it's like very sandy soil there and so this road's covered up in deer tracks and there's like a nice buck track in there i think i actually sent you the picture of that buck track Mm -hmm. and uh so I basically just was like, okay, there's a thicket here near this road. It was basically just to the north side of it. And it was pretty big size, like thicket, like just thick uh, young white pines with like interspersed just brambles and whatnot. It seemed like a really good bedding area. And I just went to the downwind side of that and got into the first tree I, that I could and climbed in there and set up. Um, nothing popped that night, like zero deer. Um, at one point, because I was getting a little frustrated of, like, not seeing an enough action, um, I just decided to, you know what? Instead of, like, trying to get somewhere and make a decision, you know, in the dark and just have, like, a goal, I'm going to actually wait until it gets light and then leave camp and literally go for a walk in the woods until something tells me, set up here, whether it's bumping into deer, a whole bunch of tracks... Fresh scrape activity or whatever. Because um, I, you know, I heard so much over the, over, listen to all the podcasts over the months leading up to this about like during the rut, if you're not in the action, then you need to go find the action, right? Yeah. I kept thinking, man, if I'm not like seeing or hearing these does getting pushed around or seeing the bucks looking for these does, like I'm just not in the zone. Yeah. So the morning I did that, it actually, As a day as a whole, it worked out good. The morning itself was kind of uneventful. And I think I didn't get into a tree and probably till like, I don't know, at least probably two hours after it got daylight. But I got onto a saddle. I mean, I had a rough idea of the path I was going to take. And I get into another saddle and there's a scrape. And like in – I can't remember if it was in a leaf or just like in a divot in – I think it was on a leaf in the scrape. But you could like see – fresh piss you know in on this scrape nice sweet like this is like this is good right saddle got a nice scrape got some fresh piss in it so got into a tree had a nice white pine next to me get in there and uh, i have a doe come in and bed down like i don't know 70 80 yards from us on this on kind of the saddle but just on the on the lee side of it and um i'm thinking geez. Like this is gonna work out, you know. Well, the whole day goes by, nothing, nothing, not quite the whole day, but it's getting like mid afternoon. I'm like not no action. I'm like, all right, we're moving. (laughs) I get down, Chris is still in the tree, and no sooner do I like get put my both feet on the ground, he's like, There's a buck. I'm like, Oh my god. (laughs) Well, it turned out to be a small buck, but still, like a buck nonetheless. Yeah. We let him pass. I'm like, all right. Let's see if something shakes out. The bed of dough had gotten up at some point and just kind of wandered off. Um, So I got back up for another hour. Nothing. We get down. And just the way I decided to go down this ridge, it's kind of, I was going from a saddle to like one of these three-way spots where like a ridge splits kind of. And we get there and it's like fresh rub central. And I'm like, sweet. Like this looks good. You know, like, Stuff's crossing through here. Get up into a a tree, and um, it's dead until, like, literally the last 20 minutes of of the day, where it's already kind of getting dark, and you're starting to, like, look at your pins going, man, can I make a shot? Mm -hmm. That's when the first buck comes through, and he was, like, a... He's definitely kind of a scraggly eight, but at that point, I'm like, man, I'm shooting if I get a chance. And he actually stops where I had a shot opportunity, but there was, like, one just limb that I hadn't cut out during my quick prep, and it's, like, going right across his body, and I just don't have it. But I get drawn back, and he's, like – he starts walking again, and just, like, it's thick, 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 and then there's, like, a couple shooting lanes, and I try to give him the, you know, map sound a few times, and he just keeps on moving. Like, he just – he definitely had – A plan in his head you know he he, the whole encounter lasted like 20 seconds it was fast well then like 10 minutes later it's even darker and literally from the same direction that that buck just went a different buck just like an an eight pointer comes almost on the exact same trail so i'm able to get drawn back as he's coming through like the thick stuff where i didn't have a shot earlier and i'm hoping for him to pop up like same place that first bucket kind of stopped in the open shooting lane. And for whatever reason, when he pops up, like instead of being at like 30, he's more in that like 40 yard range and just like nothing I can do about it. You know, I let him go and then grunted at him and it kind of seemed like he half circled towards me a little bit, but eventually he just faded away. Um, so I felt good about like the way that day played out and the decisions yeah. I had made, you know, it was like, found sign set up like even though that didn't work out i moved and and the i only moved like 200 yards between where that scrape was with the with the fresh piss in it to where all these rubs were on this like ridge intersection it was only a couple hundred yards and um you know lo and behold like two bucks you know came by me um and then like that's probably at, at where like I started like having, because it sounds like I'm ha- like retelling the story. I'm like, well, gee, sounds like you're having a bunch of action, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like, moment, you're like, well, we sat all day, and then right at dark, there was like two bucks that scurried by. For whatever reason, I never sat that spot again. Hmm. Was do that
1: a you, I mean, it's 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 hard to say, but I, I guess it depends on what you went on to do later, um, but. If you had a terrain feature, which sounds like a couple of ridges coming together with the fresh sign, and then you saw two bucks cruising through it last light, it certainly sounds like something I would try again, Um, especially given the weather. So the big thing I saw during that same week was what you just described, which was zero activity throughout the heat of the day, and then a bunch of it the last 20 minutes. Um, And so in that case, because the last 20 minutes with that weather is essentially your whole day... Um, it might have been worth trying again because you certainly had some pieces of the puzzle working out there. Why didn't you? Because it was just slower through the rest of the day? Um, Or did you have another plan?
2: You know, I want to say that was like far enough into the hunt where we basically had – I hunted seven and a half days. And I want to say we had four days of like that miserable – heat hot weather and then we had a day of rain and i think that rain was coming on the heels of this right and so this is kind of like i was going to do like a what would mark canyon do in this situation we had a river's edge pop-up line set up and um there was enough there's a room for two people and so it was going to rain enough to where it's like especially, again, with cameras, it's like I probably could have made it by myself in a tree and just stuck it out. But with the camera, we're like, you know what? Let's just go and sit and stay dry, and hopefully something will happen. And um, we had like a small buck pass us by at, like 100 yards. And it's just funny. It's like this thing's set on like a the corner of this cornfield, and uh, we had a camera there. And it, there's been does... You know, enough does there in that zone where I was like feeling pretty good about it, but that morning zero. Um, midday, I think like three or four does pop out, they go back into the woods, and we kind of see them trickle off up a ridge. Um, which was interesting to me to see like does hit a cornfield at like two and then not just stay out there. Like, I would have thought they were just going to be out there for the rest of the evening, but instead. They actually went back into the woods and then went up a ridge, like up into the big woods. So I don't know. I, I don't I have no idea why they were doing that. Like, was there, were they going after acorns up there? Like, is was there not enough corn in the field? Um, didn't make sense to me. Interesting.
1: So, I, I would say one thing I would think is that I do see something like this and that deer, they require and desire diversity in what they're going to eat. So throughout that, you know, they're just not going to stick it on one thing forever. They're going to constantly want to get some other options in there. So I'm not surprised entirely that that early in the day that they would be bouncing from thing to thing and with with all those oaks like you described. Um, I got to believe that was a big part of what they're eating. But, But yeah, that is interesting to see them go out there for so little time
2: um i I, it was cool that rainy day unfortunately it was on the neighbors and i didn't have uh permission to hunt over there but i did get to see out in the rain kind of late afternoon like a, a, a pretty nice shooter buck tending to a doe and um just very much on lockdown like they popped out of like a little thicket um that's right off the side of the road they fed out there for an hour he was pretty much just you know just watching her. And then they mm-hmm. kind of disappeared right back into the thicket. Um, and then I think that was the evening where it finally kind of the rain chilled out enough where I'm like, you know what? I'm done sitting here. <clears throat> I'm just going to go for a little walk and, uh, kind of went for a walk. And then for the last maybe hour, I basically just stepped off the side of a trail and just kind of stood there, you know, fairly well concealed thinking that, Hey, you know, never know. So, like, like, a deer might just come walking right down um, this trail that I was walking up, you know, but uh, nothing panned out. So I don't know. We talked about this before we started is like the reason I probably didn't go back to that spot that had a bunch of fresh rubs and I saw two bucks one night is that like I had 400 acres to hunt and it was almost like I had too much to hunt. <laughs> and so I, you know, you kind of, I'm like, I got to hit it all. Uh-huh. You know, got to sit on every ridge top and the bottom of every bowl one time,
1: <laughs> <laughs> so so you just kept pushing to, to new spots, and after that,
2: well, like I said, I did hunt that Oak Flat like probably two evenings and three mornings, I think. Um, I kept—I I can tell you, like, I—I I kept thinking, like, it's weird because you're like in this country. You're like, am I going to hunt on the ridge top or am I going to hunt in the bottom? Because it doesn't really seem, you told me about this when we were talking about prepping for this hunt this summer, about how like in that hill country, a lot of these bucks like to run like a third of the way down the ridge, right? Yeah,
1: yeah, that's a side hill.
2: These ridges are almost so steep where it seems like I kept thinking that was going through my mind and maybe I just wasn't like looking at it right. Maybe I was thinking just like I should have been a third of the way down like lengthwise on the ridge, like where the ridge goes from high to low a little bit and set up kind of there where they might kind of like again cross the ridge as they're side hilling but a lot of these ridges when you're looking at if you just go and set up let's say it's a 300 foot ridge and you go and set up 100 feet down like it's so steep that you're going to be you're going to have like a a perfectly perpendicular or parallel to gravity shot to the hillside right next to you you know what I mean
1: (laughs) just too steep
2: yeah it's like it just didn't make sense to set up like that um so I kept thinking like man the bottoms must be where it's at because I'm just not seeing the deer moving that much during the day up top maybe it's somehow cooler in the bottoms you know maybe that's where there's more just thick bedding cover but man every time I went into the bottom I just seemed felt like I was getting hosed by the wind yeah. Like I already explained that one setup where I just felt like it was supposed to be blowing south and I felt like it was, it was literally blew north the whole time and just totally screwed my evening hunt. And then every time I would just pop into these bottoms, it just like, it's, I couldn't trust it like I could trust it on a ridge top. And it made me, it pulled me to those ridge tops where I'm like, you know what? Even if I'm not seeing as many deer, like if I, at least if I see one up here, Like it's going to, if it comes where I think it's going to come, the wind's not going to hose me.
1: Yeah. And that seems, I mean, that's pretty consistent, both from what I've experienced. And then a lot of guys you talk to those bottoms are, they are where deer want to be a lot of the time, because that effect you just described, the fact that the wind does pool down there, it swirls down there. Uh, they can wind a lot of stuff going on, but really hard to hunt. Um, The only thing I found is sometimes you can find with certain features, there'll be like one wind direction where you will get consistent winds that you can sometimes get away with it. Like there might be a valley with little bowls coming off the side, but that valley runs, let's say, you know, from Northeast to Southwest. And if you happen to get a wind that blows straight on that angle, it doesn't spin around and you'll get that one consistent, but you have to kind of know that from experience to know the little, uh, those little edges you can cut on days like that. So I don't think you made a bad decision trying to play a safer with the wind. That probably is the the better bet nine times out of 10 in that kind of situation. Did you, did you find yourself once you got to those last couple days though, wanting to throw caution to the wind for lack of a better term, and, and kind of do some Hail Mary, stuff like that?
2: You know, I think what sort of educated the last two days, because I think we had the rain day, and then I think I had a one full day of, like, good, cool temps, and then I had a half day after that. And I'm trying to think where I started. Oh, I, I started on the Oak Flat in the morning. And Chris, my the, my camera guy, was like, we should sit here all day. We should sit here all day. And I'm like, Nope, it ain't happening. <laughs> like nine or 10 I'm like, I'm out of here. And again, I had some spots in mind and we slid down into a saddle that was kind of like a, it's like a sub Ridge. Um, and I get into the saddle and right as we were kind of entering the saddle, I bumped, I don't know, three or four does and a buck couldn't really tell how big he was. Maybe a shooter, maybe not, but they're, were, they're were just off the side of this saddle, kind of in the bottom. And uh, again, didn't bump real hard. I think they bumped on seeing or hearing us. And that was the other thing, man. It was so dry, that those woods were so loud that like, it was even hard to tell if you were gonna bump anything because they were gonna hear you 100 yards away and they could just sneak away, Yeah. you know what I mean? But I bumped them, but then I could like still see a doe as she's like, kind of doesn't know what's going on. She's feeding, she kind of just walks away. So I'm like, perfect. I'm in the saddle. We're setting up here. Set up. And, and it, this saddle was kind of closer to some of this ag than uh, than a lot of the other stuff I was hunting. And uh, I set up. And uh, I don't think anything happened that evening. But then the next morning, you know, it was the last morning I told you about where I had, like, the doe right at first light. And then an hour later, I had the buck pushing the doe around. And there was, like, a little – a small buck in and among some two. So – that was a, that was a day where I, I was so confident in that spot and it just looked good. Cause it's just, you know, such a good saddle. And I, and I had like a good thick looking bedding area off to one side of it. I'm like, I'm just leaving the setup, you know, and I'm just going to come back here in the morning and hunt it. And, um, you know, it paid off. I mean, I definitely got a view of like, you know, a real good buck. Um, he just didn't walk underneath my stand.
1: Mm-hmm. So what were, what were the questions you had out of the hunt? Like, did you, did you, the hunt wrapped up and did you find yourself like, damn, should I have done this different? Or was this, did I do this wrong? Or did you, did you head away from it thinking, I just, you know, I just needed more time or what was your thought process at that point?
2: Oh man, all of the above. <laughs> <laughs> um, Certainly could have, I mean, it's so hard to tell too. Cause it's like you go and hunt the rut and it's like, you have highs that were like almost reaching 70 in November. It's just like not normal. You know what I mean? So it's like, it's really hard to like extrapolate much when you're like, Oh yeah. Remember that is like, you could hunt it in, in a t-shirt the whole time, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think, Trying to get more out of my trail cameras would be like sometimes it's funny before you start using them, you're like, oh man, it's going to be so easy. If you just get trail cameras up everywhere, you'll know that that buck is here at 1 p.m., then he's here at 2 p.m., and then there at 3. And if you set up in this tree <laughs> at 4, he's yeah. going to walk underneath you. <laughs> and it's just not like that.
1: You Never know? that easy. Like,
2: the great big buck that we had on camera. We had had him only on camera maybe one time during daylight leading up to the season. But during season, I mean, he was like running. He was probably the closest buck to where we were sleeping um, that we were hunting, like, like literally sometimes crossing, kept cutting his tracks like less than 200 yards from the camp itself. Um, but we only caught him on camera uh, at night, you know, so it's like. I don't even know if that if if I would have sat on his travel route for seven days, I don't know if it would have paid off Mm because I don't even know if that buck moved during the daylight that week. You know, even though it was November 5th through the 12th.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Trail cameras can only tell you about one little snippet of time. And and the other thing is that they only tell you what's, you know, 20 feet in front of you at that one angle. You know, there's there's a whole lot of space around that camera that these bucks could be passing through and hanging out and spending time and going just 20 yards the other direction, and you would never know it. So they give you this little glimpse, but it is far from all-knowing. Um, and I, I keep finding year after year that the less I depend on them, the better, usually. Mm. Because when you become too dependent on them, I think you get – your judgment becomes clouded by this like myopic view. Like you get, you're looking at the world through a straw and you need to look at the world at a much higher level mm-hmm. when making these decisions. They, they, they should inform you. But if you only let that dictate your strategy, I think you really put yourself in, um, you're, you're just handicapping yourself if you do that. So it doesn't sound like you did that though. I, I like the way that you were, you know, looking for sign, trying to find the action, especially given the fact that you you didn't really have a ton of historical knowledge about what they were doing at that time of year across a place like this. And, you know, going in relatively blind, I think it was smart that you moved around, keyed in on stuff. One thing I was curious about was just how does factored into your hunting. You know, you, you were looking for sign, excuse me, but did you... Did you ever find anywhere that had the most consistent dough activity? Because that's the one other thing that, you know, from, a, from an outside perspective, I would have said, man, if there was anywhere that had that consistent dough group, you know, bedding or feeding, I would have camped there to a degree too. Because that's the one other thing that in big country like this, if you can find that, it can somehow, you know, you know, tighten what you need to focus on.
2: You know, the only place that we were seeing it both just by through our own eyes and through the camera were kind of on that cornfield edge there. And um, I probably didn't hunt down there quite as much because we had more of the tree stands that were set up for my dad in that zone. And so I was letting him, you know, hunt those spots a little bit let like that just that general area more than I was. Um And again, they were sort of at the bottom and the toe of this hill and I was just getting so burned by, you know, the wind hunting the, the bottoms of the, of those hills. I was probably scared a little bit of that, but like, yeah, there was, I can't say, you know, besides that one road that I cut across. And again, it's hard to say there too, because it's like, well, finally you have like this medium that will show you a bunch of tracks because it's not hard or it's not covered in leaves. or It's not covered in grass. And you're like, "Oh my god, there's a bunch of deer tracks." But you wonder if the whole forest floor on all 400 acres looked like this freshly graded, you know, soft sandy dirt road, you'd probably find that all over the place, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it kind of, you know, you're like, "Yay, tracks." But you're like, then you got to think, you're like, "But the country, Why? it's hard to see the tracks because there's just there aren't a lot of places that just show tracks like that. Like I know hunting Doug Durans, um, a lot of times you just cut these tracks where they're coming out of the woods and, and coming out of like corners or, you know, some sort of terrain feature that, that funnels them. And, it, and there's a, there's a trail that spits them out into a big field. And man, like my kids could walk down there and be like, Oh my God, there's a deer trail. You know what I mean? Like you yeah. don't have to be Sherlock Holmes. But I feel like in this country, you so rarely get that. It's just those trails are you're like, anytime you're on a ridgetop, you're like, sure, there's a deer trail running down the middle of this thing. But like every ridgetop has that. You know what I mean? It's never like you're just like looking at that one muddy trail and you're like, holy cow, look at the deer traveling down this thing. You mm-hmm. know? They've got it rutted out. Um and again, maybe I'm just making excuses and not able to, you know, read the the, the sign properly up there. But uh, I don't know. When it's six inches of oak leaves on the ground, how, how do you find a trail? Uh,
1: they're very, at least from my experience, it, it, you're very rarely going to get what you described, at Doug's, and and you have to just rely on those those lightly uh, just just seeing where the leaves are kicked up and and then depending on sightings and sign. To determine mm-hmm. if it is well used, but it su- sounds like this wasn't a super high deer density area anyways. So you probably no. weren't going to get to those pounded cow trails no matter no. what.
2: No, and we know that, you know, where dogs area is, right? I mean, it's some of the highest deer density probably in the state of Wisconsin, right? Yeah.
1: Man, and that's one of the tough things when you get in one of those lower deer density areas where there's – the one school of thought like you described and which some folks in the podcast, you know, talked about, which is if you're not in the action, move to get to it. So there's that school of thought. But when you're in these lower deer density areas, you know, there's not a whole lot of action to be had. And sometimes you know, there won't be any deer action anywhere you hunt for several days, or at least relatively few until you wait it out. So sometimes it's a matter of finding the spot and knowing that, okay, this has the ingredients I need and it's the right time of year for this spot. If I give it three days, eventually something will come through here, but I have to give it that three days for that to happen. Um, But it takes a certain amount of comfort and experience in a place to know that. It's really hard to, to to make that guess without having the experience that tells you these kinds of spots are where you need to put the time. in. Because sometimes you got to camp, sometimes you got to move. And I dealt with that a lot um, this year myself, where <clears throat> first I was like, okay, I got to bounce from here to here. I'm going to keep moving, keep moving. But eventually on the tail end of my rut on some of my mich- Michigan spots, I realized that you can sometimes get get to the point where you're chasing your tail a little bit too much. And if you find those few key places, and if you can hunt it without boogering it up too much, you do need to put in some volume in your few key spots to allow the randomness to finally work into your favor. Mm -hmm. Um, Walking that line's the trick. That's, that's the tough part is knowing when to go those two directions. One of those two directions.
2: Yeah. Like I, like I bought like that buck, the first night on the Oak flat smelled me like hardcore, right? Like, I mean, he just got a nose full and three bounds later he was out of my life. I never saw him again up there. Like when you spook a buck like that and he wins you, you, you know, even if it is, you know, the middle of the rut, like should I just had given up on that spot? Cause I'm like, you know what? I mean, how many bucks are going to be coming through here? That's the question too. It's like, well, whatever you just bumped. One out of there, there should be at least two others that are going to cross, come through here in the next two days, right?
1: Yeah, I, I would have thought the same thing. Yes, he might be less likely to come through there, but there's other bucks. I would have, I would have not felt bad at all about focusing on that. And even, even with a buck, winning you that one time during the rut, you know, if the right lady comes through, I think they'll look past it. I mean, I saw that this year that I had a buck win me, um, and then you know hours later where there's hot dough and he was right back in the general area because the right dough was there. So, you know, the rut does crazy things. Sometimes you got to put the, put the overthinking glasses aside and just realize that you got to let mother nature do its work sometimes too.
2: Well, I did. That definitely kept me in the woods and it kept me, you know, thinking optimistically. Uh, I don't know if that's a word. Thinking positively, <laughs> yeah. being an optimist. It was just that, like, keep telling yourself, it's a rut. It can happen any moment. Just like be in the woods and keep sitting still, you know, be in the woods, be in the yeah. woods.
1: Would, would you do anything differently now when you, when you look back and think it through, are there any clear things? I know that for me, one thing I try to do after a trip or a hunt or a season is I will try to identify just two things. Cause it's, it's really easy to list off a whole bunch of stuff I did wrong, but then be overwhelmed by all those things and never be able to actually take action on it. But if mm-hmm. I narrow it down to like the two most important things, then I can actually do something with that and remember it and focus on that. Is there, if you had to pick two things you would do differently or try to do differently this next time, what do you think that would
2: be? Hmm. I don't know i guess i mean kind of it's hard yeah i mean I, I guess one thing would be tree prep right for the saddle like even though you can just move anywhere you want with that saddle and again maybe i'm maybe i'm placing too much uh like n- sort of like negative connotation on having to like cut limbs and and cut shooting lanes when you get to a spot but, like, one, it took time where I wasn't hunting. And, two, it, it makes racket, right, where, you know, if there happens to be something better than 100 yards away, like, I don't know. Are, are they going to be okay with hearing me saw down 30 to 40 branches and some small trees? I, I, I don't know. So I feel like maybe what I could have done is, like, instead of just, like, being like, okay, you got to get in the woods and start hunting, maybe I should have just taken the first day. And, like, walk the whole property, which, again, some people be like, you don't want to do that because you're just going to run your scent all over the place. But, like, walk the whole property, identify, like, you know, some hot scrapes, some hot trails maybe, maybe find that road, you know, earlier in the week that had the, uh, you know, a bunch of tracks on it and maybe, you know, hunt it at a different time. Um, And maybe just pick out some trees and just go – that spend a day climbing up and down trees and cutting out shooting lanes, you know, and cutting out, you know, just prepping the tree itself to get into it. And that way, leave, leave myself in six days where, you know, not every setup, but almost every setup, you could be like, I could go in there and know that I'm just going to slip in quietly and, and get into the tree and be hunting, you know. Um, man. Otherwise, I could probably have just sat m- more. You know, I think having the ability to move so much, like I never in those seven and a half days, I never sat one tree, dark to dark. Like I, I moved every single afternoon, and I think that, like you just said, you got it. You got to give the animals the opportunity to walk underneath you. You know, and every time you get down, and that it happened to me that one day where. I couldn't take it any longer and got down at one or whatever it was, and sure enough, you know, there's a buck, even though he's a little buck, but it's like, he hey, he could have been a twelve pointer, you know. Yeah. Um. So, I, I probably just you know two or three days should have just been like, you know what, it's as good a spot as any else, just sit it out, you know. And instead of taking those, because. Like moving trees, even if even if you just move 200 yards, like I did that day after the the I had the the scrape with the piss in it, even though I only moved 200 yards, it still took a solid two hours from my hunting. Right, where like I'm out of the tree, I'm walking around, I'm, I'm you know sawing limbs, I'm prepping the next tree, and you know you add that up over the course of the week, and if I did that every single day, and I'm guessing because I thought I would be faster. (laughs) (laughs) It takes time, right? I bet you it was two to three hours every time I wanted to move. And so you add that up over, you know, a week, and all of a sudden it's like I almost burned a day, right? You easily burned an eight-hour day, middle of the day walking around, you know? And I know some guys don't even sit the middle of the day, right? But, like, had I been in the tree, I don't know. Maybe something else could have walked by me
1: yeah and you do have it, it's it's um oh what do they call it there, there's just basically the the tendency to look at what happened and then try to come up with answers for why it happened when sometimes it's just bad luck too like there's this sometimes you need to like be analyzing what you did and and understandably or or clearly be able to see, okay, yeah, that was a mistake and this is what happened. But then there's other times like this where what you just described, it, it, maybe you should have sat. But in the back of my mind, I'm also thinking, but it was also 75 degrees. Um, yeah. Probably wasn't going to be shit moving through there anyways. Now, there could have been, but at the same time, you were dealt a tough hand with the weather during that week. And, and so much of the activity was pushed to the edges that a little bit was out of your hands there. Um So I don't know when I, when I hear about what you did, it seems like there's, there was a lot of stuff that made sense, but at the same time, there was things where, you know, I think if you had a little more confidence with some of your decisions, you maybe would have stuck it out in places a little longer and that might've helped you. Um, all that takes time. That's the thing. It's like confirming decisions takes time. It takes like years in these kinds of places to be where I'm at you know, some days I'm thinking, man, I, I just know with these three factors lined up, this is a place that deserves time and attention. Or based off the fact that I saw this happen last week and this week, I know that this is somewhere, somewhere that I'm willing to sit eight hours without seeing anything because I know that if I give a 10, eventually something should Um but you know, 10, 15 years ago or whatever, before spending thousands of hours doing this stuff, I would have been questioning myself the whole time. Um, so I don't know how to, you know, there's really no way to build that up except for just time, seeing it, testing it and seeing what happens, you know?
2: Yeah. No, I feel like, you know, my dad actually ended up getting a shot. Unfortunately he had, uh, he had lost a release and then ha- was using a release that he hadn't practiced with as his backup, and um, I think it was much uh, lighter uh, release than his old one. And mm-hmm. so he basically touched the arrow off long before, you know, he had even kind of settled his pin and, uh, you know, had, had a clean miss. Um, but, uh, you know, it was, it was actually the rainy day, and he basically went into a zone where – we had been getting some, you know, fairly good activity. And he's like, you know what? That's a place we haven't hunted yet. I'll take my little pop-up blind in there and uh, set up and hunt it. And uh, sure enough, a bunch of great rutting activity. And uh, he has a nice 10-pointer come right by him. And un- unfortunately, he, uh, he uh, you know, didn't get it. But um, so, yeah, I think, you know, between my dad and I, we got like, had some pretty close calls, you know, had a, just a couple things gone a little bit differently, um, you know, might've gotten to, you know, fling an arrow at a, uh, or, or had a dead buck. You
1: know? Yeah. Do do you think that, is there anything you can point to that you feel like you really took away as far as like a, a learning experience that, that you can point to is like, man, I'm gonna, mm-hmm. I'm going to be better because of that. jeez do you think you're a better deer hunter now after after this hunt having experienced all that you know
2: uh, I was gonna say just if there's if there's one thing it's like the whole thing of just like spending a full week seven days boots on the ground you know having to go through all the all that decision making and pick trees and and all that stuff um, and, and just looking at that, property which you know i've hunted since i was a little kid but never through the eyes of a serious bow hunter and now having done that for seven days like um yeah i've just got like such more intimate knowledge of the place it's going to help me you know inform decisions that i'll make in the future um it's yeah so i don't know if it's like a better deer hunter but i think that I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess you could say that, you know, and, and hopefully, hopefully what it gives me out of more than anything is just the confidence to make a decision, right? And be like, yep, that was the right decision. You know, go with it. Yeah. And not Did- not be swinging around that tree constantly going, no, should I move? <laughs>
1: <laughs> if it makes you feel any better. Well, I just told you that I'm a lot more confident. I still have plenty of days where I'm sitting there wondering, ah, should I move? <laughs> that still happens to me uh-huh.
2: too. <laughs> I know one thing, man, if like the wind is not happening, I'm not going to waste my time. If like, yeah. even if I set up and it's just the best, best, best spot, because I just don't feel like, sure, if it's like kind of off, if you're like, oh, it's supposed to blow south and it's blowing southwest, sure. Like, I'll I'll stay there. But when, when it's blowing north and it's supposed to be blowing south, like, it just is not going to happen. You're going to, I'm going to have to get out of the tree and, and do something else. You yeah,
1: know? yeah. It's Uh a tough pill to swallow but it's true
2: it is and maybe use that evening to just go and glass the field from the road and see what pops out on the field you know and and, you know get some information that way
1: yeah so do you did you like it I mean you went from like the deer hunting you've done in the past was was like you said a little different little gun season type stuff but now you kind of dove in head first this full blown bow hunting a lot of strategy a lot of puzzle pieces you got to put together are you into it
2: Totally man I love you know the older I get the more the that's what I'm drawn to is the hunts that are hard for me I mean I still don't get me wrong I still love a squirrel hunt because it's like casual and just fun and it can be easy At times. Not that squirrel hunting is always easy. But, um, you know, even though I haven't... No, I did kill a bull this year with my bow. But, like, I kind of just have an idea of what to expect when I go out into the elk woods, you know? And, like, I had four really hard days of hunting a week ago here to finish out the Montana big game season. But it was tough conditions, you know? And it's like I, I went and hunted, but, like, I know like why things happened. Right. Like I have answers for all of it, but I think, like I said, I was saying, I think what's, what draws me towards this and like any kind of new hunting I'm doing is that like, I don't know it and it's a challenge and there's like a lot to figure out. And there's a lot more to learn. And, um, that gets me excited, you know, and to know that like how close we were, you know, this year, you know, to having a, uh, a dead buck, um, I, sh- I, I got a feeling we're going to be like that much closer, you know, next year with what we know now. Um, but you just kind of have to—you got to you gotta tighten the noose a little bit, you know uh-huh. what I mean? Like, yes. I feel like we had like a kind of a, a medium-sized noose going and never really snugged it up, you know, to really to really dial in. But uh, yeah. Um, you- you got to be
1: careful. You got to be careful, Yanni. It's a slippery slope when you start uh, getting excited about this stuff and getting into the nitty gritty details and strategy. It can uh, can grab hold of you fast. So be prepared.
2: I'm ready, man. I'm ready. I told myself one of my uh, one of my resolutions, and I've already done it since I've <clears throat> since big game season has ended. is I've shot my bow once this week. And uh, I'm going to shoot that sucker all winter long. I'm not going to have this where, like, turkey season ends. And I'm like, oh, my God, I better start shooting my bow. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> um, that's kind of where I've been the last three four years. Um, and uh, I want my, like, bow shooting be to, like, the lat. It's like I feel like it's something I can m- control much easier. Yeah. And it should be the last thing that's on my mind when i'm actually out there hunting is like oh am i going to make a good shot yeah. you know um i want to have that all dialed like i'm going to switch arrows this year i'm going to go i'm going to the super heavy setup super high foc yep and i'm going to get that done in the next you know month or two and not in the summertime you know
1: uh i i 100% agree with your your thought there with it not necessarily just the archery thing but if there's something that is in your control that you can do something about right now, like do it because in the field out there, you know, that next time you're out there for a week in November, there's going to be so much that's outside of your control, whatever you can turn, you know, and, and have dialed. Now that's, that's one of those things when you're trying to tighten that, tighten things down that you can control ahead of time. You gotta, you gotta try to do that. So
2: yeah,
1: where, where are We got to wrap this up. Um, I feel like th-
2: I do have kind of one more thing I want to kind of discuss quickly. Oh, yeah. yeah. We have time is like one thing that I saw on the trail cameras is that, like I was telling you, there was like that. It seemed like it was the last two weeks of October where all of a sudden we were like, oh my gosh, like we're going to have some bucks to hunt. You know, like they're here. Like all of a sudden they're showing up. You know, they're hitting those and they were hitting the scrapes hard. Then it seemed like when we got there, it like, and again, could have been this like crazy hot weather too, right? Like that played a part in it. But like it almost seemed like the buck activity on camera slowed down. And then it picked back up like after what I think mean, most people would consider like peak rut. Like sort of somewhere middle of November or I'm trying to think. I left on the 12th. But like so after that, towards the end of November, it sort of picked back up. And I saw like I caught two bucks that we had never seen yet on camera – a completely new box. And so I'm like wondering like what my dates are going to be next year. Hmm.
1: It's there's
2: go still for first week of November. or Do I maybe slide in two, three, four days of October and then hunt into the first four days of November.
1: I always look at the first two weeks as being your safest bet. The first week or two in November is is just safe, but if, if you get a weather front like what we had come through, it can really change things and make things more difficult. So, I mean, like in your situation where you have to lock down the dates way ahead of time, you're kind of SOL. I would still err towards somewhere in that range just because it's just hard to beat it year in and year out if you had to average things out but you know hunting pressure could have impacted you a little bit right i mean once you start being around there and you walking around and your dad walking around all that stuff like that could be part of the reason why things slowed a little bit of course the weather slowed things um who who knows what else is going around there i I wouldn't read into it too much given those factors is i guess what i'm trying to tell you at the same time though you know you can start to get to know property. And like, in my case, I've got a spot that always is better early. I've hunted it for over a decade now. And I have found that for whatever reason, there's some does that come into heat, you know, early consistently. There's always a hot dough, you know, that last week in October. So peak rut type stuff starts happening for me that twenty sixth, 27th, 28th around there. And so I hunt that week just as if I was hunting November 5th. Uh, but it's taken me time to figure that out. And, you know, there's no other way to find it other than that kind of thing. So always something more to learn, Yanni, always something more to learn,
2: man. But that's what makes it fun.
1: It does. That's, that's for me. That's what I love about it. Like you said, it's the, the challenge. It's this puzzle. It's, it's chess and poker and checkers all mixed in one. And, and I just, I geek out about the never ending process. So, uh, It's, it, it brings a smile to my face knowing that I've got a kindred spirit over there in Montana right now. And, uh, I think we just got to figure out a way to share the whitetail woods together here soon and do something, uh, do something, get a hunting on the books.
2: I'm in, man. I'll, uh, let's, uh, we'll end this and get on the phone and start planning.
1: I like it. Where can people see this hunt? Giannis, where's, where's this all going to be and when?
2: Uh, this will be a meat eater hunts episode, which will air on the meat eater YouTube channel. And I believe now they're talking, um, like, uh, April timeframe ish. Um, and I'm going to have six episodes coming out and uh, I can't tell you which one this one's going to be, but, uh, yeah, start looking for it late March. Um, and keep an eye out for it through April. And then if you still haven't seen it, maybe in the first two weeks of May, but, uh, <clears throat> yeah, meat eater uh, YouTube channel, meat eater hunts.
1: Awesome. I'm looking forward to checking it out, Yanni. Thank you for taking the time to walk us through all this stuff. Um, I, I still feel like there's 15 other things I wanted to ask you about, but <laughs> like we talked about, we always go longer than the planned time, and we already have. So
2: yeah, well, maybe we'll uh, maybe you ought to come out this spring or summer to the property. And we can go do a tour and then we can sit down and do a podcast after we uh, walk the property and you can give me your uh, your feedback.
1: Sign me up. I like that idea. That sounds like fun. All right, Giannis. Thank you. And uh, let's figure out that spring trip soon.
2: Sounds good. Thanks again, Mark.
1: All right. That's a wrap. Hope you enjoyed Giannis' story. I hope that maybe some of the things we talked on the front end were able to help kind of color some of this conversation for you and, and left you with some different things to think about now that we're wrapped up. Um, if you can do some of that homework I mentioned, hit me up on Instagram, leave a comment on Facebook or Insta and let me know some of the things that that you took away either from this podcast or from your own hunts after you were able to do a little bit of that um, decision analysis or, or learning. So uh, thank you all for tuning in. Thanks for riding along with me as uh, as I go down these crazy rabbit holes. But I hope and, and really what I think this podcast has the most opportunity to do, not just this episode, but in general, right? I want to make the Wired Hunt podcast be a place where where those of us with a similar passion can get together and have a good time, but also where we can push ourselves and push each other to take that next step. And I think this type of exercise is a way to do that. So... If you're game for it, give it a shot. Think about these things. Let me know what you're thinking. And uh,
0: until next time, stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You